You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Uh, people, the time of the evening where you join us on uh, the show after dinner months and the segment uh, Travel Express. And Alhamdulillah, Muhammad Ayaz Karim doing sterling, sterling job in place of Ibrahim Badacha. He's become quite popular here and feels part of the furniture. Muhammad Ayaz Karim, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And now tell me, how are you doing this fine, uh, beautiful evening? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Oh, I am uh, like an icicle shivering away. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it's it's been it's been up and down. Like we have you have those uh, few hours of sunlight in the day, but in general, I just feel like this cold front is quite severe. And I I w- was reading the news earlier, and I feel like it's um a lot worse um, in other parts of the country. So I think in Gauteng we're still relatively okay compared to you know like. Uh, the cakes and stuff like that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, something about uh, our segment, uh, you know, Travel Express. And uh, I don't know, when you're traveling and uh, somehow when you're really hungry, you know, you feel the hunger and you really, I don't know the food, or what, what you can say, maybe we embrace the food and we really enjoy it. Look forward to a nice, hearty meal. Especially when you're traveling, you get more hungry more often. What's your thoughts? <laughs> I mean, I think for me, uh, I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm hungry all the time. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, I, I'll never, I'll never turn down a, a, a good meal. And like, I, I think, um, like we've discussed in the past, I'm not. Uh, I mean, I'm fussy with regards to good food, but I think everybody is. But I'm very much so open to uh, trying new things and exploring new things. Like, I one of the things I really can't stand is you know when you go to buy ice cream. And you've got that one person who will always order chocolate or vanilla. I am like, I'm just the antithesis. I'm always um, trying like, but the chocolate cookie crunch, you know, deluxe. Like I always want to try something new and different because I feel like you can't make uh, educated decisions in life if you don't experience things for yourself, you know. So to completely uh, disregard something or just like say, nope, or make up your mind without having any Fact, anything to base it on is just I feel like it's a it's a it's a silly way to uh, approach your life. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know, with the, me, I like the tried and tested. If I, uh, uh, you know, if, if if you brought me, if I go or, or you know on a tour and if I'm you look at the meals, and if I'm not, you know, I, I'm I'm not that adventurous thing when it comes to you know going. I uh, you know. Out oh, of so you're one of those people I'm talking about. I just feel like you know what. Um, you know, uh, I'll give you an example. When I went for Umrah the first time, it was I was quite young. Um, I think it was 2000, right? Um, and every day it was in Ramadan, and uh, every day uh, iftar time, my uh, parents, uh, myself, and my sister would go. Um, I think it was the Hilton just across from the Haram Sharif in Makkah, and they would buy a baklava, right? And they would like. Gobble it up. They were just kidding. And I never wanted to taste it. I said, uh-uh, that doesn't look tasty. It doesn't look nice. I'm not going to try it. At the very end of our trip, I think on our way home, uh, we stopped in Egypt on transit. And I finally decided to try the baklava for the first time. And I love it. I like I, Baklava is one of my favorite things. But the fact that I was so resistant um, from the beginning of my so that means I missed out on so many delicious uh, uh, baklava. And if I never tried it, I would have never known, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, when it comes to sweets, yeah, uh, I mean, maybe, yeah, I'm adventurous when it comes to sweet things. 
But I'm talking about the traditional curries and the you know the uh, things that I know my acne, the biryani. Maybe we have biryani. I'll be adventurous to try the Hyderabadi biryani, the Memon biryani, or you know the uh, Afghan uh, type of uh, biryani, and you know very bland indeed. Uh, I, I will go for things like that, but something like out of you know I never chowed that before. I won't chow. Like would you eat like octopus or uh, or like something never. crazy? I mean, oh. I, I I don't go for head. I don't go for brains. I don't go for the tripe. I don't go for the trotters. I do, I just can't uh, take that. And sometimes it's like um, uh, you know the, the what they call the kalaji of the liver. I will eat it when it's you know nice and hard and so forth. But uh, oh, generally, my favorite! I love the liver. I love I, I the giblets. Give it to me all. I've tried brain. Uh, I've tried tripe. I've tried trust. I, I, but okay, my mummy is a cockney, so I think she she grew up uh, in a butcher family, so oh, I feel okay. like it's uh, expected, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean the cockneys are the, uh, the 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 best butcher. I mean uh, you can talk to them and uh, are quite good cooks also. I mean they 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 make a very potent fish and uh, fish curry also. Uh, uh, my mummy is one of the best, I must say. So I had the nail on the head there, mashallah. Yeah. I'll be getting to know a lot of. Uh, our cuisine there, people, but on Travel Express, as you know, you travel and you chow. Now, you know, South Africa with its tourism, and uh, I mean, South Africa before, uh, you know, it imploded and became pear-shaped. It was a yeah. country everyone spoke about, everyone wanted to visit. It had the, the Kruger National Park, it had everything. Now they're using uh, the, uh, uh, the rugby captain, you know, Sia Kolisi. Now, perhaps a question to pose to you, uh, Mohammed Ayaz Karimi, is... Uh, how do you think uh, Sia Colisi's, uh, Colisi's appointment as uh, the global brand advocate will influence uh, South African tourism? So I think uh, Sia Colisi is not just a man. Uh, he's like a symbol of hope and resilience and tenacity. He's become synonymous with that because of his uh, immense success, right? So his journey uh, from like an impoverished background to captaining the Springboks to the to World Cup victory is uh, nothing short of awe-inspiring. So I feel like um, his appointment as a global brand ambassador is actually a masterstroke because he embodies the spirit of South Africa and he is an inspirational story that resonates uh, globally. So with his influence, he can truly elevate our position on the world uh, on the world tourism stage. Besides, uh, the power of sports and especially the power of like a figure like uh, Kolisi in bringing people together and showcasing uh, the country's beauty and strength, it can't be underestimated. So I feel like it's a new dawn uh, for South African tourism, and I think it's uh, it has a bright future. Well, absolutely. I mean, as you said, he's, uh, uh, his, his story uh, being from, uh, you know, coming, I mean, he was uh, put into a private school. It was, I think, our very owner, Rossi Rasmus, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, discovered him and... Uh, put him through the, uh, you know, through the different grades and all. I mean, it's a, it's a success story because also a winner of the uh, Rugby World Cup. And, you know, what role does a Rock Nations uh, or Rock Nation Sports International play in this uh, new partnership with the South African Tourism and Sia Colisi? So, uh, Rock Nation Sports International, this is like uh, the powerhouse sports management firm. They actually play quite a critical role in the partnership. So, uh, you must remember, uh, uh, a company on this scale and magnitude, they have vast reach and a strategic acumen, which means they can actually project South Africa and Colise's message to an audience of millions, right? They have a, a very good track record of very effective branding and promotion. And uh, their role will be 
to position South Africa as a must-visit destination, while simultaneously uh, elevating Khaleesi's personal brand. So I think the synergy will actually yield significant benefits for both parties, and it's definitely going to contribute uh, to the amplifications of South Africa's law. No, absolutely, and, uh, you know, uh, all uh, the, the different uh, uh, nations, uh, you know, that, um, especially those that play that uh, oval game, you know, the oval yeah. ball game, they all be uh, very interested to come uh, the homeland of uh, Sia Colisi. Yeah, as you said, it's a stroke of genius. And uh, then, you know, we think about our uh, train system, our railway system in this country has been compromised to such an extent that uh, these guys, you know, have taken our rail tracks away, uh, you know, uh, it has compromised uh, the country to such an extent that uh, the trucks were brought in, or, you know, long distance uh, uh, truckers uh, came into the uh, into the fore, uh, you know, exacerbating the uh, uh, what you call this, uh, the potholes and so forth. But, uh, you know, there are also uh, uh, railways uh, that in Europe now, uh, something is happening there. And, you know, perhaps the question in, uh, for, for, for Europe is, uh, what are the main drivers for the resurgence of night trains in Europe, uh, Mohamed Ayat? So I feel like uh, the revival of uh, night trains in Europe can be attributed to quite a few factors, right? First, there's, um, there's quite a nostalgic allure to night trains. Uh, which harks back to like an era of glamorous and leisurely travel. But uh, the resurgence is not uh, like a merely like a romantic thing. It's also practical. It's um, environmentally conscious. Um, air travel, while it's fast, is notoriously damaging to the environment. And many are looking for greener alternatives. And trains, particularly uh, overnight ones, they offer a viable solution. So they allow uh, travelers to cover long distances without losing a day and with a much smaller carbon footprint, and uh, it's also an experience. So I think that's the main reason behind it. Think about night trains in South Africa, could be a nightmare, people. But, uh, Mohamed, uh, you know, keeping on that theme, how have governments and uh, rail operators uh, responded uh, to the challenges and opportunities of the uh, night train renaissance then? So governments and uh, rail operators have actually been very quick to jump on this uh, night train bandwagon. They've recognized the potential and they've been investing heavily in updating uh, their rail networks. They're revamping sleeping cars, they're launching new routes. And I think uh, these improvements are aiming to make uh, overnight night train travel not only possible, but appealing and comfortable. So while there are still challenges like uh, infrastructure uh, issues, competition from budget airlines, the unpredictability of uh, travel post-pandemic um, it's like that, that, that it's all still up in the air. But I mean, I think the response has largely been uh, proactive and quite optimistic. Akshvat? Uh, Mafa, yeah, uh, yes, I forgot to unmute here. You know, talking about uh, railways, I mean, I remember South Africa had that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the blue train was uh, the pride and joy of uh, travel here. I don't know if they still have that. And then you talk about the bullet train, and then uh, let's talk about the railways in India. I mean, the way they I've carry on, on. I've been on the trains in India. What an experience, my goodness. Talk, talk, talk to me. Talk to me. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I traveled on the Rajdani. Um, I think I went to Jaipur, Bangalore. I mean, this was a long time ago, but um, my first experience on a, a Indian train was quite horrific. I... <laughs> 
the train sways um it's where it rocks continuously and, and like to give you context i've been on a cruise ship right and i never experienced uh motion sickness or seasickness but on the train um it was so severe that i you sleep in these uh, almost like uh bunks there's, so there's like a pull-out beds one above the other and um there was um a husband and wife sharing this it was quite a big uh night car and i was sleeping above this man and the rocking was so intense that I vomited all over the sleeping man below me. Uh, my parents were obviously like, they, they were horrified. They didn't know what to do. But uh, we literally cleaned this man off in his sleep. He never woke up through the entire experience. I will never forget. Unreal, unreal. So you all uh, did the, what you all had to do. And uh, yeah, wasn't the wife away that uh, you had? Uh, I, I so I, I I don't remember the details. I just remember this. I feel like she wasn't in the in the car at that moment. But I remember the man I clearly. Remember the man not waking up. It was crazy. Yeah, you're lucky there. I was completely. You know, these uh, sometimes they can get very hysterical indeed. And uh, yeah, so that was your experience on the train. And what about people? You know, sitting on top of the train, uh, Muhammad Ayas. I, I I mean I don't remember I don't remember that. I, rem- I we also. Um, did like a couple of bus journeys. So we went all over the country. Um, we were visiting different like sites and mazars. And I remember, uh, sure, th- th- those journeys were like, it's actually, I feel like uh, the traveling that I've done in my life has actually uh, molded me as a, a person because you get to experience and uh, the way people love, the way people what what their day-to-day life is. And it really opens your mind uh, to make you realize that, you know, what you consider to be normal is not normal for anybody else, you know? So it really is a very eye-opening experience. Right, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking about uh, uh, that vision that Cecil John Rhodes had, a Cape to Cairo rail track. I mean, that would be... it. I mean, he started building it. It ended up somewhere in Africa and wasn't completed. Uh, but, you know, if things were peaceful in the continent of Africa, that would make, a, a, you know, a fantastic journey from sea to sea, uh, Mohammed. Yeah, no, you know, I feel like I, I have a very positive um, outlook with regards to the direction African leaders are taking in general. I feel like there's a lot more uh, unity and they, they, they've reached, a, um, I think they've reached the point where they are tired of being considered subhuman. So I think African leaders are speaking up and we've got quite a dynamic group of African leaders currently. So I think they're they're on the right trajectory. It's just a matter of um, how much the West will be willing to um, accept this, uh, I guess, dominance or growth in power of Africa and its independence. Because as we know, they have exploited the continent for hundreds of years and they're comfortable in the position that they're in. So when there's ever a shift in power dynamic, it always uh, creates a sense of, you know, what if you, you can never be sure. Now, have you noticed uh, the uh, shift in Sunil uh, Ramaphosa's attitude? Once upon a time, he was acquiescing in silence to the dictates of uh, the UK and the US. Now he's got some attitude after the recent meeting with Putin and uh, uh, maybe for the rest of the African leadership, as you alluded to uh, alluded to uh, earlier on. And I personally feel uh, that if Putin says, don't worry, I'm with you, China is with you, you know what? Don't let these Americans bully you. What's your thoughts? 
Uh, that's definitely, I mean, that's exactly the, um, the, the way things are going right now. And I honestly think it is um, a step in the right direction. I feel like uh, history has, history reflects that the Soviet Union has, has come to Africa, has added infrastructure, has developed the people, and has viewed Africans as their um, peers. Whereas the complete opposite is true for the West. They've come, they've destroyed, they've plundered, and they've taken. And they still have this uh, very prevalent sense of condescension. So I feel like since, uh, for like the last 400 years, Europe has been condescending the entire world and telling them why what they're doing is wrong and what they need to do and what they need to change. When uh, While failing to completely, to accept any responsibility that the core of the problems all started with them, uh, based on their colonialism, based on their exploitation, but it's something that just um, they refuse to acknowledge. <laughs> Good point there. So you think uh, that uh, white supremacy is coming to an end? Definitely. You know, I think um, the, what the, uh, the funniest part about the whole thing is that Europe is known for its colonies. So like France had tons of colonies in Africa, so did the UK. And now I feel as if the continent of Europe has become a country of colonies, all colonies of the United States. So I, I think um, it's gone full circle where the, the master has become the servant uh, and the current master, the USA, uh, I don't know how long they can hold on to that position anymore. Yeah, no, uh, you know, no uh, empire lasts forever. And we know that uh, through the annals of history, we saw many, many empires uh, bite the dust. Something that I really admire are these big, massive whales, you know, they eat tons and tons of krill a day. And uh, when you look at the story of uh, Yunus alayhi salam, Jonah in the belly of the whale. But uh, I want you to shed some light on uh, the recurring incident of pilot whales uh, beaching in you know Australia and New Zealand, uh, Muhammad Ayaz. So this uh, phenomenon of pilot whales beaching is quite a heartbreaking mystery that actually scientists are still grappling to understand fully. There's like a few theories. Um, first, navigational errors caused by the whales or sonar being fooled by like gently sloping beaches to the idea that um, a single ill whale may uh, strand and send out distress signals to the pod and also to the beach themselves. What is clear that these events are really tragic and the problem is that right now we just need to learn more about the phenomenon and how to prevent it because science hasn't given us an answer so far. Yeah, you know, they make uh, distressing calls and so forth. But uh, you find human beings uh, going to the rescue and trying to push the whale back into the ocean and perhaps, uh, you know, unwittingly damaging them more. But, you know, how are rescue operations managed and uh, what are the biggest challenges faced uh, during these uh, tragic events, uh, Mohammed? So these uh, whale rescue operations actually require quite a Herculean uh, effort from multiple parties, right? So from local volunteers to marine biologists, government officials, uh, the first task is to keep the stranded whale hydrated and cool, which is physically exhausting. I mean, just due to the sheer uh, weight of these uh, mammals. Uh, attempts are then made to refloat the whale, usually at a high tide, uh, but the challenges are numerous, uh, from changing tides to just the sheer size of the whales. 
unfortunately, uh, despite best efforts, success is not guaranteed. So every operation is quite grueling, and uh, it's a reminder of how much we still actually have to learn about these creatures. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, those are whales uh, that are kept, or the killer whales uh, that are kept in captivity and, you know, trained, and eventually they come to the realization, no, they have to be released. The same with the dolphins, you know, they keep them in captivity for the entertainment of people. What's your views on that? Should they be kept and, you know, keep people entertained? So I really, you know, that's a good question because it's not ever something I've considered. Like, I don't, you know, I, I will be lying to you if I tell you I had a stand on um, like zoos and animals in captivity because I mean, thinking about it now, you know, you've stumped me because I'm not like, <laughs> I, I, I really don't know. Like I'm, I don't know if I'm opposed uh, opposed to it or if I uh, feel like it's uh, abusive or I mean I feel like there are definitely uh, levels of um, captivity that uh, are uh, that can be considered to be like exploitative, but I feel like if if you're creating a an environment where the animals are uh, comfortably and fed and treated well. I, I just, I don't know, what, what, what are your views on this? Because I really am stumped. Like, trying to think about it, I really can't uh, make a de- decision this way or that. Well, for me, it's uh, amazing to see the intelligence of these uh, animals, you know, the brilliance of them, how they react to the human beings, uh, you know, the expression and the sounds they make. I mean, it's just uh, magical. I mean, some of them are so naughty, they'll come and splash the spectators, you know, they'll come and pick the water up and splashes they come have fun with me like they embrace and celebrate the uh, situation and the occasion and as long as they're healthy and they're okay i think you you know it's okay uh, but uh, you know there comes a, cer- a certain stage of, uh, the, the sad part is when i hear them you know passing away uh, whilst they're in captivity or they're getting sick and all that uh, i'm i'm not for that but i, I like them uh, you know they could come into the, uh, the the entertainment area but i'd like for them to go back into the ocean because they are tamed they will make a U-turn and come back, you know, a certain time, maybe give them a signal or give them a sound, let them come back. But after hours, let them go back to where, you know, they'll be more comfortable than being in, in, in captivity. Uh, imagine the logistics of that. Like, I feel like that wouldn't be um, feasible. Like, it would just be logistically a nightmare. Like, if you think about it, I feel like it. Um, you have to either, it has to be one way or the other. I don't think... I understand uh, where you're coming from, where you're trying to, where you would ideally have a situation where you have the best of both worlds. But I just don't think it would be economically feasible or even like logistically feasible. Yeah, provided if, uh, yeah, if uh, that uh, entertainment area is near an uh, ocean, and then maybe they can have, you know, a caged area where it'll be part of the ocean. But as you said, uh, that is, uh, you know, perhaps uh, not uh, feasible at all. And uh, then uh, we move on and we talk about, you know, how, uh, in South Africa, I mean, you, you look at the beaches around the world and, uh, you know, if someone tells you beaches, then you think of Mauritius, then you think of the Maldives, uh, you know, maybe some places in Australia. But uh, South Africa has some, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, top beaches uh, and considered amongst the best in the world. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living in an area called Isopingo Beach. Once upon a time, I don't know if I gave you the story when I was traveling with the, the late uh, Ian McIntosh, uh, who was also the uh, Natal uh, 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 rugby coach and the Springbok coach and you know, on the plane whilst we were uh, having a conversation and then uh, he asked me you know where you live and I said this is Pingo Beach 
said, wow, that's a little paradise. I mean, that was in the 40s and 30s. He used to come here and actually, you know, uh, stay in the Sapingo Beach. So that was it. But now with pollution and, you know, what has happened, everything is gone uh, uh, under file 13. But, you know, why are South Africa's beaches considered amongst the best in the world? Uh, That's a good question to pose. South African beaches, I mean, where do I begin? Uh, Our beaches are a perfect blend of diversity and natural beauty from the sunkissed sands of Durban, Golden Mile, to the like rugged beauty of the Wild Coast. Uh, we've got panoramic views along Cape Town's uh, beaches to the unique spectacle of the penguin colony at Boulder's Beach. South Africa's beaches have something for everyone. It's not just about beauty. Our beaches are incapably, uh, impeccably maintained. Uh, many boast uh, blue flag status, and they usually offer wealth of activities from surfing, scuba diving, to beachfront dining and leisurely walks. So I think it's a it's a full experience for tourists. And I mean, I've uh, I've been to like a, a fair uh, amount of beaches in the world, and I I have to say, Durban beaches are still my favorite. Like they just you can't beat it. You can say it again. You just can't beat it because because I'm... truly, I mean, Cape Town is just too cold, right? Um, I I've been to Mauritius, and the way I was staying, I think maybe I was staying on the wrong. In the wrong part of Mauritius, but basically the beaches are beautiful and the water is beautiful, but the sand is literally so, uh, it's basically seashells. So you need to get those uh, those seashoes because you can't walk on that uh, ground without literally cutting your foot. Um, I be, the beaches in Australia are amazing. Those were really, I've been to the Gold Coast and those were really amazing experiences. Um, Dubai Beach is also lovely. Uh, it's like that white sand and that clear water is amazing. But I mean, yeah, like I still think there's something about, you know, I uh, when when I was growing up, my, my go-to was Eddington Beach. I don't know if you remember Eddington Beach. Very but well. We, we used to, uh, just, it's, it's such a, it's such a uh, I feel like a classic Indian thing to do. When, uh, when we were younger, the, my, my auntie would cook a big pot of biryani and we would have a picnic on the beach. It was just like a, some of my fondest memories and like really uh those those uh those are the the memories that i cherish because even though like now if you try to go to Eddington beach now it's a it's a different it's a completely different world now you know yeah. but i think we can still uh at least appreciate and remember what uh how great those beaches were and i mean look things evolve and things change and now Amshlanga has become the new i guess go to but uh i still think uh com- Comparatively to Eddington, uh, like that side, the that side, I still think those are better because I'm sure that some of that said is also quite gravelly, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, the, the 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 spots you're talking about very popular indeed, and the other spot that was very popular for picnics uh, was Blue Lagoon. Blue Lagoon. Yeah, Blue Lagoon. I mean, you can't, you can't, you have to, you can't talk about Durban without talking about Blue Lagoon, you know. And uh, Mr. Adam had his uh, favorite uh, restaurant there. At night, people used to go and have the top, top meals there. And, you know, moving on, we talk about uh, South Africa. And, you know, what makes the culture and heritage of South Africa so unique and diverse? Uh, you know, that is something we can discuss. But, uh, you know, your thoughts on that? So South Africa's uh, cultural diversity is, is actually, it's a reflection of its rich history, right? We are a rainbow nation and our culture is a vibrant mosaic of indigenous tribal cultures, uh, colonial influence and modern day vibrancy. So the, this diversity actually permeates everything. 
from the 11, actually now it's 12 official languages because sign language is just uh, made an official language to our cultural uh, delights, the, the, the vibe, the ambience, uh, even our architecture. Each cultural group in South Africa adds a unique thread to the country's tapestry uh, and it makes it a fascinating place to explore and experience. Yeah, well said there. And, you know, some of the activities that one can enjoy whilst visiting Chinubi are Africa. So when it comes to activities, um, South Africa is definitely an adventurous paradise, right? So from hiking up Table Mountain to surfing in Japanese Bay, uh, game drives in the Kruger's Park, uh, to exploring the Kango Caves in Otsurang, there's something for everyone. And let's not forget uh, the vibrant city life, bustling markets, incredible restaurants, dynamic nightlife uh, in cities like Johannesburg and Cape Town. Plus, uh, South Africa has um, various events and uh, cultural events throughout the year, and they are very much uh, celebrate every everyone, every culture. So it's not uh, it's not restricted to like a, a certain narrative. I think every uh, event or cultural heritage uh, event is recognized and uh, celebrated. Yes, and uh, finally, uh, Mama Dayas, uh, you know, uh, how is uh, visiting South Africa uh, for, you know, value for money? So look, South Africa offers uh, a travel experience that's rich and diverse, and it definitely will not break the bank. Uh, you've got accommodation options ranging, uh, ranging from your budget-friendly guest houses to luxury lodges and the uh, best five-star hotels in the world. Uh, dining in South Africa is also an experience in itself. You've got top quality food at affordable prices. Um, and if you consider the exchange, uh, the favorable exchange rate, it's a, dest- a destination that offers exceptional value for money, especially for Europeans and Americans uh, and uh, Middle, uh, Middle Easterns. But the beauty of South Africa isn't just landscape. It's also, yeah, I think the affordability of experiencing all. Tell your Travel Express, uh, you know, all the better having you on board. And uh, perhaps your parting words uh, this evening. No, it's always a pleasure. This is a, this is an enjoyable chat. It actually, I think, uh, in researching um, our country, it uh, reminded me of how much we have to offer. And I just really hope, uh, especially with the Sia Colisi uh, partnership, that uh, South African tourism really uh, puts their best foot forward and, and really helps to grow our uh, economic prosperity because they have all the opportunities and all the advantages. So it's time that they actually use it to the benefit of the people. Now, well said there. Time, uh, you know, to even give uh, Sia Kulisi dawa. Whatever we do, he must do dawa. And, yeah. uh, you know, Madiba's uh, grandson is already a Muslim. Uh, Sia Kulisi, I think, comes from that part of the world. And someone should tell him, uh, you know, it's time for you to do extensive dawa. Well, imagine, you know, when, uh, you know, leadership uh, becomes a Muslim, then suddenly the whole flock follows uh, Muhammad Ayat. You know, I mean, it, it, it is, it's something that I think we should consider in our day-to-day always. We, we always need to spread uh, our deed, but I feel like based on what we can see in the world, our, the, the amount of people embracing Islam uh, on a global scale is outstanding. So I just think the Ummah needs to head in the, keep heading in this direction, but also you need to needs to remember the the spirit of unity and oneness, you know. And I think that will make a lot of changes. Yeah, as you said, uh, you know, oneness, Ubuntu, and uh, the important thing is uh, that you need to be, uh, you know, respecting each other, and uh, by our behavior, 
And the way we carry on with people, people will look at us and say, no, I want to be like Muhammad Ayaz Karima, I want to be like Mufti A.K. Hussain, and I'll be like, uh, you know, so-and-so because of, you know, the honesty and the integrity. And that is Dawah, and they will become Muslims there too, just watching uh, your honesty and, you know, uh, obeying Allah and obeying His Messenger, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Muhammad Ayaz Karim, as I said, really great having you. And inshallah, we'll talk to you soon. And you have a blessed evening ahead. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, sir, people, keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming and also lovely nasheeds interspersed. I'd like to thank Lucalo for great engineering. I'm the team and I, till we meet you again, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.